0: What do you consider to be unusual?
1: Oh, I don't know. What do you recommend?
2: Hey everybody, welcome to the first installment of the CuffCast, a resource for weird, underground, and fantastic genre cinema. The type of cinema we showcase at the Calgary Underground Film Festival. I'm the host and lead programmer of Cuff, Cameron McGowan. And on our debut episode, I was lucky enough to speak with Robin Bougie about the end of Cinema Sewer, and the maestro himself, Steve Kostansky, about his latest opus, Psycho Psycho Gorman. <laughs> Alright gang, coming at you from Rhett Miller's lovely home office, the producer of our show. It's the first episode of the CuffCast. Rhett, say some words to the folks.
3: Great to be here. Great to explore some weird weird movies and uh, some weird people who make them.
2: So Rhett and I, as listeners probably don't know, we make our own movies together, part-time. And uh, we both just love weird movies. And uh, So I've been programming with Cuff for 10 years now, and I met Rhett back in film school about 15 years ago. And he's just a jack-of-all-trades and all-around good guy. Happy to have him aboard. So what is Cuff? What is the Calgary Underground Film Festival? Well, what it is, is an 18-year-old festival in Canada, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, that showcases the strangest movies, the movies that you don't want to show your parents. And what was your first introduction
3: to Cuff, right? Yeah, I was just trying to think it was probably was it the second or third year? That was the second year. Second year. Yeah, they had a, it was a screening question. Screen, yeah, thank you. Screening on uh Canadian cinema and we watched some really weird ones. There's still some that haven't ever been released that uh, Corpse Grinders one or no, Corpse Eaters. The what Corpse the Eaters.
2: The Corpse Grinders has been released. The Corpse Eaters Corpse has not. Corpse Eaters
3: is the Canadian one that's like 50 minutes and half of it's like stock footage of birds, but like it's amazing. <laughs>
2: so we're a local non film festival that showcases strange movies in the asshole of uh, Western Canada, Alberta, and <laughs> we like to keep it weird here, and we like to fight the good fight. We've had uh, John Waters as a past guest, Bobcat Goldthwait, Aubrey Plaza, The Amazing Randy. Uh, we show movies on rocks, and we show movies on 35 millimeters sometimes. Right now, we're showing movies virtually because COVID has shut down cinemas, but we are eager to get back into the cinema. Right now, we are programming the 2021 festival Been watching so many movies my brains are pouring out of my ears but we've almost got a great lineup. I'm so stoked on it but in today's installment I really want to talk about some of the unsung heroes of the film programming world, the lovely previewers. What does a previewer do? Let's find out. Now everybody at home, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the film programming process but it definitely takes a village to program a festival. And amongst that village are our esteemed previewers who have the laborious task of watching every single movie that is submitted to a film festival. And this year we had over 1,500 movies submitted. And one of these esteemed previewers is Mr. Jim Evans, who also has his own podcast, Film Rage. So, Jim, welcome.
1: Hello, friend. How are you today?
2: Oh, real good, man. So, Jim, what does a previewer do?
1: Well, a previewer is responsible for watching the film, critiquing it, and giving as much input as they can that will help the programmers to make a final decision on whether or not this makes it to the festival or not.
2: How many movies do you think you watch in a year, Jim?
1: Uh, This year was a slow year for me, buddy, I have to say. Now, I normally focus on shorts. I don't uh, normally go into the feature side. I've been doing shorts for uh, probably around seven or eight years between a couple of different festivals. So I don't want to say I'm an expert at it. I'm just, I kind of like it. It's funny, not everybody likes shorts. They don't seem to get it, but I think I do get it. At least I hope I do. I'm still working with you guys.
3: So what's the formula for a short, like for a good short? Like, what are you looking for?
1: You know, my opinion is just like any movie, it's got to have a beginning, a middle and an end. Like it has to tell a concise story. Whereas, you know, sometimes you'll you'll get shorts and it's almost like it's a clip that's really just like a portion of a movie. And often, you know, when I see a film that I don't feel is fully fleshed out, that's part of my commentary that I'll make is that this is a great concept what they've got here, but what this seems to me is more like a piece of a full feature or a, a little segment of it. So for me to be a really good short, it's gotta tell that story. And it's only got a few minutes or, you know, a maximum of x amount of time to tell that story so for it to be good it's got to get that across in that short amount of time
2: jim how do you prevent burnout you watch so many shorts how do you still keep them exciting
1: ah you know it's funny you say that because uh over the years there was a time where i was working 12 months of the year previewing and i did end up having to leave one festival because i did get a little bit burned out but you know the, the thing for me is i love the passion of film like it could be the worst movie It can be the best movie, I just love it. So for me, for burnout, it's like, I know I can commit to this amount of films in a day. So whatever that is, I pick that number and I say, okay, I can get through five shorts today. I've accomplished something. And the accomplishment of completing that is what I need to do. Now, obviously if we set goals for weekly goals, I'll also set that too. like, maybe my goal that week is to hit 50 movies, right? So then I have to up my game on the weekend or maybe adjust my schedule. But for me, it's all about goal setting. That being said, how do I make sure I stay fresh is that I usually like to get rid of the ones that are the hardest to watch. So we have them segmented within different categories, one of which is uh, experimental. So for me, I try to get through all the experimental films at the beginning of it so that I've gone through the tougher ones to sort of get through, because often experimentals can be tougher. And then I focus on a specific genre or a type that I know that I'm going to find a lot of things that I like in it.
2: So that you're in the mood.
1: Yeah. Most people aren't going to want to do that. Most people don't necessarily cram as many as that I do. So for me, that's what helps. But I think for the regular viewer who's going to pick up and say, you know, I want to be a previewer for uh, this fantastic festival, you know, making sure that you give yourself separation. Don't just look at the time or only pick up narratives or only pick up English only. I mean, there's so many great films that we watched this year that were not made in North America. Right. So don't be afraid to pick up a film that's made in Hungary or Israel or wherever. Right.
2: Now, we haven't yet locked our full package, but what are some trends you're noticing in short films this year, Jim?
1: (laughs) I think it's probably kind of obvious that there's going to be a lot of COVID content. Right. You know, you can't escape the fact that a lot of these films were probably made during COVID. There's either COVID concept or COVID theme, or you can tell that it was maybe even filmed in COVID because it's like one actor or it's two actors, but guess what? They're not with each other. So it's, it's kind of neat to see the creativity that's coming out, right? I mean, those things change. Like you can see trends that, you know, when the Me Too movement started out, it's like we start to see a ton of shorts that were focused on the Me Too movement. And same thing with Black Lives Matter. This year, we had a lot of films with that content in it. So it's great. It's good to see different directors and different actors getting profiled in different years because of what's happening in society.
2: Oh, well, thanks for doing all that you do, Jim. And rage on, my dude.
1: Rage on, my friends.
2: Thanks for the great chat, Jim. Be sure to check out Jim's Calgary-based podcast, Film Rage. Now, up next, we have someone near and dear to my heart, Mr. Robin Bougie of Cinema Sewer fame. Robin's been self-publishing Cinema Sewer out of Vancouver, BC since 1997, and you can now buy it in collected versions from the illustrious Fab Press. Recently, Robin announced the end of Cinema Sewer with issue number 37, and we're about to find out why. Stay tuned. All right, everybody. So, after 23 years of being the cutting edge classic that it is, Cinema Sewer has come to an end. And with us is Robin Bougie to just explain why the hell he would do this to us. Robin, welcome.
0: <laughs> How's it <a> going?
2: Good, <laughs> good, good. Uh, so, for those who haven't read your eloquent Facebook post, why are you ending Cinema Sewer now?
0: Well, some things just come to their natural end, you know, and I think it's kind of beholden upon creator of something to kind of know when that day is.
2: And so, how are you wrapping things up with Cinema sewer? Are there any final epic plans or business as usual for the last issue?
0: Um, well, uh, the new issue just dropped a few days ago, and it's pretty much a biz as normal. Uh, I put a little intro piece just kind of like explaining, hey, everybody, this is the last issue, and a little sign-off saying everybody be good to each other, but... Uh, Besides for that, I've got something planned actually for the, the final compendium, the final collected volume, which will actually be around this year next time, which will be the, the 25th anniversary of the beginning of the, uh, the zine. Actually, the, the last issue, but there is technically one more CinemaSewer publication coming.
2: Awesome. And so that'll be from Fab Press?
0: That's, yeah, my publisher, Fab Press. <sighs> yeah.
2: So can you uh, talk a bit of what are the differences between the zine version of CinemaSewer and the collected Fab Press editions?
0: Well, the zine uh, is self-published, uh, and it's what what I do, and it's a, it's an offset-printed comic book-sized magazine uh, with full-color covers and newsprint interior, and it originally started out when I first started doing it like a photocopied zine. The first 10 issues were photocopied, and then uh, with issue 11, I went to offset printing because I had kind of built up an, an audience kind of slowly. It was like this little, you know, kind of underground-y kind of hit. And then um, the peak I hit was 2,000 copy print run. Do
2: you remember which issue that was?
0: That would have been issue 14, around there.
2: Oh, nice. So is that before the collected versions then?
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, my peak was when I was being carried by Tower Records, and then they went under. But the entire chain would put in, like, these orders. And it was kind of amazing, because I would be like, whoa, I don't have to ship off, like, Four or five boxes, you know. <laughs> and instead of like now, which I have to individually mail them it takes so much longer than just putting everything in three or four boxes.
2: <laughs> and so, then, what are the differences in the collected versions? Do you edit your articles? Add anything new?
0: Yeah, the the collected books uh, usually have um, sixty to eighty pages of brand new material, and um, then um, they have the best from the, from the zines as well, and. Uh, which which is pretty much everything although you sometimes maybe you know a year or so down the line i'm like ah this wasn't good enough and so i won't put it in the book but for the most part it's got everything that you would you would want that have from the issues
2: cool so listeners at home please do pick up the single issues and the collected versions i've been doing it and it's quite rewarding to get them right from robin man you can feel the love so thanks for doing what you're doing man and for keeping canada cool Uh, so why why did you start cinema sewer
0: Well, up until then, I'd been doing mini-comics. I did the first issue of Cinema I think I was 23 or 24, and I had started doing mini-comics when I was like 18, right out of high school, and I was just really excited about the idea of self-publishing my own work, and it was it was the '90s zine boom, and it was kind of before pre-internet, so it was kind of how you know kids in small towns kind of kept in contact with each other and doing these these little mini comics and mailing them to the mail, and it was just like every day was like Christmas, like opening my mail and you know trading zines with other kids. And this guy named Rico did a zine called Poochie, and he asked me if I'd like to do like a column or something for his zine. I was like, oh, I've been watching lots of cult movies lately. It'd be kind of cool just to like review cult movies. I had so much fun doing it. I'm like, oh, why haven't I been doing this all along? Like, so much fun reviewing movies. And then, but then he like, he canceled it after like one issue. And I only got to do one column for a zine. I was like, fuck that. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm like, well, do my own zine. That's actually how Simonsura got started. My my wife actually came up with the name. She just thought it was like a cool sounding name to it. I went with that.
2: Well, yeah, man. I remember when I first heard about it, the name's definitely what stood out. I saw it at Suspect Video and I was like, Cinema sewer. It's so visceral. And it's exactly what you get when you open up the magazine.
0: Yeah. My personal interest was kind of in the leaning towards like the sick and twisted, the uh, kind a of weird sexploitation, exploitation, porn, horror, anything kind of like on a, the, the weirder end of the genre spectrum.
2: So what do you think is the importance of tactile smut in the modern age when people can just pull up any variety of triple uh, X tube sites?
0: I'm not so concerned with the medium of how people consume it as much as I am with the content. That's that's the part that I find interesting. I know some some writers are more like, you know, that have maybe have like their zines focused on VHS or or uh, it's more focused on like how people consume it. Neat. The content is really the important part. And that's kind of why I, I focus more on the classic stuff. I kind of have like a mid-90s is kind of what was, was my, my cutoff range for the stuff I, I write about. That's just because I'm kind of I'm more interested personally just in, in the older stuff. I just find vintage porn has so much, like, interesting stuff going on, even beyond just what what you might masturbate about. You know what I mean? Like, there's the, the, there's this kind of quirky music or the, like, look at that rug people are like, Like, that's crazy. Like, half the time I'm not even looking at the sex. Like, I'm just like, there's all this crazy stuff going on. Like, Wait, why is everybody, like, there's a cat sitting on that woman's lap. Like, what's going on? Like.
2: I definitely, yeah, I agree with you. There's an added surreal quality to it because a lot of these movies present themselves as actual stories, but they're using like their own, you know, locations, like their own homes or props they could wrangle themselves. It's truly independent filmmaking uh, and outsider art. So I do love the TLC it's been getting from a lot of these new boutique labels. Uh, Can you talk a bit about what you think the interest is for collectors these days? Vinegar Syndrome's releasing some... Golden Age erotica titles. I know there's um Cinepics. Do you have any thoughts on what the current appetite might be for this content?
0: Well, I'm really happy to see it because it means a lot of um films that weren't available or were previously only available in like really terrible, you know, quality bootlegs uh, are finally getting restored and Vinegar Syndrome Center's doing a great job with that and um it's just really great to see. It's a real boon for for collectors and for people who are interested in seeing these movies. And, and just having access to them uh, so much easier than than before uh, is really really nice.
2: It's definitely a more sanitary approach. Can you talk a bit about wrangling these types of films back in the day, or some of the stranger experiences you may have had in cinema?
0: A lot of it was tape trading through the mail. Uh, even like in the pre DVD era, was a lot of a lot of just you know three titles per VHS tape, and like and tra- tra- trading them all. Like we, I remember having lists and like getting in like like having pen pals and we'd all like exchange each other like your, your want and your have lists and you know you know you always got excited when you when you you met somebody new and they uh usually you got in contact with them you know because of somebody else it was like it was all kind of who you know who you knew And uh, just finding somebody who had like a list of really obscure shit was always so exciting.
2: (laughs) And uh, you've written about it in some of your books, but can you talk about um, some of the seedier Vancouver theaters from back in the day?
0: Yeah, my neighborhood porn theater uh, was the Fox, which actually ended up coincidentally being the last porn theater in North America to still be showing film prints. So not DVD projection, but actual, you know. 16 mil or 35 mil print so i was actually getting to watch 16 mil prints of porn titles until quite late I, I, they closed 2006 i believe there's nothing quite like seeing hardcore porn in a theater for, like projected you know in a, in a in a room full of other like masturbators Well, <laughs> actually i don't think i was masturbating but i would smuggle beer in and The funny thing is it was mostly like a pickup spot for gay dudes, which was kind of crazy because it was always straight porn playing. I'm like, why didn't they just play gay porn? (laughs) Uh, If there's this is mostly all just going to be gay guys. uh, There was so, yeah, there was a Fox. There was also um, the Venus uh here in vancouver which was another um adult theater which i've written about and that actually used to be like a vaudeville stage it was a really old theater that got torn down to build condos the fox is still around but it's no longer a theater it's a uh, like a nightclub there's like stand-up and music acts and stuff there but they kept the very much the fox aesthetic which is pretty cool so
2: Cool. Um, so can you talk about uh, meeting some of the people that you were writing about over the years and if you reached out to them for interviews or if you just became ingrained in the scene from writing about it?
0: Yeah, I've done a lot of interviews and some of who are over the years. Well, mostly uh, classic um, adult film stars, some exploitation film stars from some directors. It's been interesting to get to talk to a lot of these people. For me, it's always been about the research and like, uh, getting the stories behind the films. I've never been that interested in just writing a synopsis of a film. It's, to me, it's the, the behind-the-scenes stories is, 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 I think, what makes cinema CinemaSewer interesting. And um, you only kind of get that kind of stuff when you actually talk to the people who made it and get it right from the horse's mouth. It's been interesting, especially talking to a lot of these vintage film stars, because they're like, you know, grandpas and grandmas now, right? So it's like they have a different view on their life at this point than they did if, if I had interviewed them if the, you know when the films were current at the same time. You're asking them about stuff they did when they were in their 20s quite a while ago. And some of them, you know, maybe after their parents died, they may have sort of become their parents. You know, they're, maybe they're a little more conservative now. Uh, maybe they moved back home to the Midwest. And, and some of them are just as 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 wild and crazy as they were in their 20s and haven't changed at all. And it is, it's, it's interesting to see who has changed and who hasn't.
2: When, if ever, will the early issues of cinema sewer be collected?
0: um the earliest issues actually have been collected in um i've done them in order in the collected volumes so the first volume from fab press collects um the best of the first nine and since they were they were smaller and photocopied um i could i could fit a lot more of them into that first collected volume but then after that there's there's less of them per
2: ah that's why i was wondering is they all seem the same size so to collect 12 into one seems quite the task
0: Uh, yeah (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, so for listeners at home who might not be familiar with vintage erotica, what are some classic titles that are obtainable right now that they should look into as like a starting point?
0: Like we were talking earlier, uh, Vinegar Syndrome is a great place to start. Although I personally recommend against a lot of their Carlos uh, Tobelina titles, <laughs> although those seem to be they have their own kind of viewership, but I personally think they're pretty unwatchable.
2: And they have so many of them.
0: They, they've got like a dozen of them, but <laughs> that's, steer, steer clear of the Tobolinas.
2: Not a single Radley Metzger, but...
0: Yeah, those, those you get through uh, through through districts uh, or, or Cinepex. They have the, the stranglehold on the Metzgers. Those would be a really good place to start, actually, is the Radley Metzgers. Stuff like Maraschino Cherry or... Um,
2: Barber Broadcast.
0: Yeah, Bar- Opening a Misty Beethoven. Those are all oh, really... Yeah. The
2: Image. The Image. Those you when know, you got super arty. Yeah, Licorice Quartet. Yeah, those are like... The thing is, is that there's so much artistry and craft in a lot of these movies. These were people who wanted to make independent cinema. Uh, a lot of independent filmmakers got their start making erotica, as we know. Wes Craven, Abel Ferrara. Anyone else come to mind? Bill
3: Lustig. Billy Bag. Yeah,
0: that's right.
2: Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, Party Kitty insteads. Studs, yeah. <laughs> um, so... Do you feel there are modern lessons that could be taken from this genre for current independent filmmakers?
0: I think what there is to learn that is obvious to me right off the bat from the genre is sort of a fearlessness or a kind of fly-by-night aspect to porn, especially from that classic era. Because a lot of them, you have to remember, a lot of them were being made at a time when they weren't even legally allowed to do it. It wasn't until like 80... One, I think, in California, you could legally make it, and a lot of them were, of course, you know, being made in California or previous to that uh, on the East Coast in New York. I mean, think about how like crazy it is to try to put together a film, and then on now on top of that, you have to worry about like the cops busting in. So I mean, you, I think you make a different type of movie when you're doing it, you know, under the cover of night, so to speak. And I and I think um, there is like a like a firebrand kind of. Undergroundy aspect that I, I think is really cool sometimes it's, if it 's a little too easy or a little too safe to make a film maybe, maybe you 're not going to come up with your best work
2: i don 't expect you to be a futurist on this last question, but one of the greatest aspects of cinema sewer is the film curation aspect you don 't only write about. Vintage erotica, you write about action films and horror films as well. And most readers are probably reading it with a pen and a pad nearby for movies to check out later. So what do you think the future of film curation is in the post-zine age? And what are some uncovered gems that you brought a light onto that you're most proud of?
0: Man, I don't know about the future. That's that's for all of us to experience. (laughs) I think a few that I I managed to... Put a bit more of a spotlight onto um, Action USA, which just came out from Vendor Syndrome this year. That's a movie I reviewed like 10 years ago. I think very few people had heard of it. And I was really happy to put more of a spotlight on that one because that's a, that's a really great action film. Really in, independent action film made in the uh, early 80s in Texas.
2: And great gangsters bantering about their mothers. Yeah, that movie <laughs> yeah. is so wild.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, highly recommend that one. Maybe like Haosu, the uh, the Japanese film. I did a review of that years before it ever came out on a home format in North America. I can't claim to have popularized that one, just that, that that had its own kind of cult audience even before uh, it was readily available. It's just such a I love one of my favorite Japanese films of all time.
2: Well, yeah, I appreciate the generosity of your enthusiasm, and uh, I hope that you continue to inspire many film fans through past volumes of Cinema Sewer. But what does the future hold for Mr. Robin Bougie?
0: Uh, I've got a lot planned. Um, not too much that I could talk about right now, but um, I'm, I'm not going anywhere, uh, even though Cinema Sewer is kind of... Actually, you know, really, Cinema Sewer is not really going anywhere either. It's, it's just complete now. So if you just think of it in those terms, it's, it's, just, it's just finally complete. And uh, the books are going to stay in print for the foreseeable future. I've still got boxes of unsold magazines. So I'm, I'm going to be selling them probably for the next 10 years. <laughs> uh, so then my, my website will still be up. My online store will still be there. Uh, but yeah, I really like to experiment a little bit more with um, long form comics and I'd like to take the cinema sewer style and maybe apply it towards maybe some other topics and, that's kind of what's rattled around in my brain, but I, I can't speak about it too much now because a lot of it's just sort of in the idea phase or we're just starting out. So,
2: Well, thanks so much, man. We appreciate all that you do and hope to have you out at the festival one day. Make that train trip when COVID's done.
0: Yeah, people can pick up the new cinema sewer at uh, CinemaSewer.StoreNV.com. And thanks so much for having me.
2: Up next is our very own producer, Rhett Miller, with the Golden Boys Report. Welcome, Rhett.
3: Pleasure to be here and edit out your uhs and ums. What are the Golden Boys? The Golden Boys are a troop of five people, of which both of us are two of them. Does that sound right? I don't know. That sounds right. That's good, yeah. That's good? Okay, good. So the five of us, we enjoy watching weird, eccentric cinema, and we often buy too many of those discs that get left on our shelves unwatched, and we certainly can't watch them with our significant others, so we get together every other week to watch a film together. Of course, we've been virtual now, but we enjoy watching the weird stuff, laughing through it, enjoying it all, and uh, just enjoying the gore and laughs and nudity whatever
2: sometimes they occur at the globe cinema when we're allowed to see each other in the flesh yeah so what do we watch this week
3: we watched the wickedly talented barry gillis wicked world from 1991 from the american genre film archive
2: what's wicked world about
3: <laughs> you Try tell to me summarize i don't know it's uh it's about life maybe It's an existential trip into the mind of an aging serial killer as he tries to sort through his transgressions and try to find out what got him to the place where he is today, which is handcuffed to a large children's slide, which he barely makes it down. (laughs) Doesn't the writer-director
2: himself make a lead appearance, I guess, as a cop on the edge?
3: He does. He's fornicating, he's doing badass stuff, Kung-Fu kickery. (laughs) He's a he's a jack-of-all-trades. So what did you like about this movie? I like the fact that it, I wouldn't even call it a movie because it's so crazy and you get so used to seeing formula. You know, you watch so many movies or you watch Hollywood movies or anything like that, but it's just its own experience because it kind of throws out, you know, the three act structure and it just kind of is like on its own rhythm and rhyme. So it's, it's, it's insane. Like there's a 12 minute end credit sequence where there's shout outs to people and a random scene and a music performance. That credit scene is its own short film, you know? But there's like a hundred more minutes of
2: The movie is completely unpredictable. I I remember there was a moment about 15 minutes in where all of a sudden a title card flashed up out of nowhere. This woman cheated on her man. Dot, dot, dot. There had been no other title cards up to that point. And after that, it was like another hour before there was another one. Definitely an unpredictable watch. And uh, I, I quite I like Barry Gillis' movies because they all feel like Barry Gillis' movies. Like, I've seen Killing Games. I've seen Things. Now I've seen Wicked World. And they all do seem like the vision of one man. And you can see his perseverance on the screen. And I know he's living out in Edmonton now, making feature films. Brett DeHaan-Hart's in his new one. Corey Feldman. And Barry, if you're listening, keep doing what you're doing, man. I love him.
3: Yeah, they're unlike anything you've ever seen before. And every single one is a completely different ride. Yeah, they are. If you're
2: bored, you will not be bored watching a Barry J. Gillis movie. Yeah. You'll be everything but bored.
3: And you'll never guess what's coming next.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, do check out Wicked World, now available on Blu-ray from Agfa and Bleeding Skull. It's a stacked disc with a feature-length documentary directed by Barry himself in the 90s. And it has a commentary as well. So, check that out.
3: Your brain will never be the same.
2: Siblings, Mimi and Luke, Unwittingly resurrect an ancient alien overlord. Using a magic amulet, they force the monster to obey their childish whims and accidentally attract a rogue gallery of intergalactic assassins to small town suburbia in Stephen Kostansky's latest opus, Psycho Gorman. In October 2020, Calgary Underground Film Festival was honored to screen Psycho Gorman with three of the cast joining us via Zoom. And Rhett and I are extremely lucky to have the legendary wizard himself, Mr. Stephen Kostansky, joining us us by zoom right now
4: thanks for having me i love that you called me a wizard that's a great start
2: you have these beautiful long wizard locks now in your hoodie cloak the modern wizard equivalent and uh in front of me i'm looking at the hunky boy edition of psycho gorman absolutely beautiful happy to own this for the rest of my life what do you think about how it's been presented
4: so far sir the packaging and what have you i just gotta say i'm so thrilled to be able to still put my movies on physical media like thinking back to when we were releasing The Void back in 2016 all the conversations were oh like DVD and Blu-rays on the way out so uh, we might might not even get the movie on a disc and so it was a fight to make it happen back then and so the fact that with PG talking to like RLJ and Shutter and Raven Banner there was no pushback at all. They were the ones who were like, yeah, so we're going to do like DVD, Blu-ray and probably like double dip down the road with other editions and stuff. Like it's made a full comeback, which really excites me because I love physical media and I don't want it to ever go away.
2: And it's beautiful in that it feels like everyone's double downing on the limited collector as niche aspect
4: and actually trying to please the people that buy their products. Now it is a collector's market and not as mainstream. Like, yes, we'll sell DVDs and Blu-rays at Walmart, but I think we're, we're targeting collectors specifically now with physical media. And so in doing that, we are catering to them and having as many special features as possible and making it something that's worth owning and worth physically having and looking at and giving you as much, as much content for your money as
3: possible. So so were you part of the conversation to get the cover looking like uh, Sinbad's house guest? That was a poster that I personally commissioned
4: the artist Vince Evans, uh, who did the divorce dad artwork. I commissioned him to do a parody of house guest. Um, And yeah, it was like, I I commissioned it not knowing what I would do with it. So when Raven Banner said they wanted to do this ultimate edition, I was like, great. Now I got a place for this absurd poster that I <laughs> got made for some reason. So yeah, I, it's definitely, in my opinion, the best representation of what the movie is. So I'm glad that it gets to be part of one of the physical releases of the movie because it really just... I think it sums up the movie nicely in how Except we- except the movie doesn't have a dog in it though. That, that is true. But I mean <laughs> that's also representative of the era that I'm uh, influenced by, which is having stuff on the cover that maybe isn't necessarily in the movie. And I, I wanna disagree with Rhett. I wanna say Gorman is the dog.
3: But he's, he's in the mailbox. He's it's a bad. metaphor. Okay. Yeah. And
4: actually, technically, there is a shot of him walking two dogs. They're just tiny chihuahuas and not the, like, <laughs> big like lab or whatever that we put on the cover. But, but yeah, I, I love when covers have stuff that's not in the movie. I think of, like, all the straight-to-video Seagal movies from the early 2000s where there'd be, like, a car zooming across <laughs> the case with, like, his eyes peering over top. And it's like, that car's not in the movie. So I wanted to have a little... That
2: <laughs> and steven seagal doesn't have that much energy in the actual movie
3: yeah he's sitting down
2: uh so I, I do want to address this though you brought up something interesting you commissioned uh part of the package yourself just for personal fun use and i'm noticing this with a lot of filmmakers now is that um filmmakers are collectors themselves and are curating their packages, or well, my favorite filmmakers, uh, like yourself, Stephen, and uh, are curating their packages to best represent how the movie can live in the future. And so I want to know how important is that to you, that you were willing to put your own money into some of these special features? And how important is it to the producers of the Blu-ray that were they willing to actually give
4: you a budget for this? Well, if anything, it was like we just had too much stuff like RLJ and Shutter, They commissioned the Graham Humphreys poster, which is like the main poster for the film. And because we're in this like collector's era, they knew, you know, we're going to need multiple versions of the artwork because this is a, ultimately a commercial product that needs to be sold. And so that's why there's the version of the cover where it's just PG standing there with his meat sword. It's like that's kind of the vanilla Walmart cover but then other editions will have like the Graham Humphreys poster, uh, like on the hunky boy edition and the, uh, host guest poster. So it was just a case of like everybody throwing everything they had at it and giving as much variety as possible. Cause it's important to me to give people like those options and that kind of variety and just that quantity of special features as well, because, In working in, like, the indie sphere, you don't really have the money to, like, commission special features. So every movie I make, like, from the start of, like, pre-production to, you know, delivering the film, I'm trying to, like, take photos and shoot video of everything that I'm doing. And I end up, a lot of times, end up cutting the bonus features myself. Thankfully, uh, my friend Pierce Dirks was able to cut the, like, main EPK feature on the film. But yeah, I just want to have that kind of content that I fell in love with in the early days of special features, like in the late 90s and early 2000s. I have such vivid memories of watching the bonus features on the end of the Army of Darkness VHS, the Anchor Bay VHS, because I was right in that transition between VHS and DVD. And so the movie would play on the tape and then you would have the like making of and then trailers and TV spots just play after the movie. And I just love... At that age like discovering that stuff and seeing the inner workings of the movie i just watched i think it's such a crucial component to building out the universe and the mythology of the thing that you've made like i'm not that interested in just the narrative itself within the movie i'm also fascinated by everything around it like the making of how it's marketed All of that stuff to me is like part of the world of the story you've created. And so I wanted to milk that as much as possible with PG and have as much bonus content, and ciliary content. Like I'm prepping to shoot a music video for the rap song at the end of the movie. We're going to make like a toy commercial for the toys that are coming out. We've got little TV spots that we did for like a fake. Well, actually, I shouldn't even say fake. It's a legitimate tie-in with a restaurant called Lester D's in St. Catharines. That we're treating like a McDonald's tie-in, like exclusive PG glasses. So there's like one oh, for PG Happy Meal toys. There aren't toys, but there is like a Happy Meal box that you'll <laughs> be able to get with that has. Sounds like, like there's a road trip in my near future. Yeah, no, it's pretty sweet. So, like all of that stuff to me just informs the movie and helps build the mythology around it. But it also
2: inspires future Kostanskis because, as you said. It uh, inspired you early on in your career. And myself, Rhett, and I make movies as well. And I can attest to that. The El Mariachi VHS had a whole bunch of shit on it uh, about how to make movies. But God, when DVDs started coming out uh, and they weren't so far into the self-promotion aspect of the movie. They didn't know how to make special features yet. And so they just leave the camera rolling and make a two-hour thing where you actually see how a film set works and you can see how boring it can actually be and how frustrating it can actually
4: be. And those are the lessons that are great to get out to the people. Well, yeah, and that's the stuff that will inspire the people that are actually committed to becoming future filmmakers they'll see that boredom and that tedium and the frustration and instead of being turned off by it they'll be like oh yeah that's what i wanted <laughs> that's, that's what, I'm watching like the army of darkness behind the scenes like just seeing how unglamorous it was it's just like a bunch of bros and heavy metal shirts and long hair goofing around and i'm like yeah that's great that's a that's considered a professional work environment. In oh yeah, when they're dumping the sweat out of the hog witch suit. Yeah, all of that behind the scenes, that like shot on VHS behind the scenes footage for Evil Dead Two is amazing. I
2: oh, that was from Evil Dead Two with the with the sweat that was. Yeah, so. That was the cellar hag. Yeah,
4: that was yeah. Ted Raimi's character, but uh, I don't remember. Who and his was.
2: feet were so wrinkly and oh,
4: yeah. <laughs> <it was> so <laughs> gross. Yeah, just pouring <laughs> sweat. But out of those shoes it was disgusting
2: is there some footage of you pouring sweat out of your gigantic
4: rubber suits in this uh i mean i wasn't really around for matt getting out of the pg suit but (laughs) i'm sure it happened and i'm i know for a fact that he suffered greatly all the way Wait, that
2: was matt it's matt kennedy in the pg suit no
4: no it's matthew neneber is the actor ah um, good because i know
2: some of the other astron boys show up
4: as the council yeah, Matt plays Cortex, the kind of, like, snooty asshole guy. <laughs> uh, Connor shows up later as uh, Cassius 3000. And then Adam, obviously, is Greg, the shithead dad.
2: And I'm so glad you bring up Adam. I was going to save this for later, and I didn't want it to be a weird segue. But uh, your cast is obviously getting a lot of great attention, specifically the lead young actress, who's amazing. And we had a Q&A with her um, at the cuff screening of PG. She's just as vivacious in real life so i would like to hear about how you found her but i want to hear more about trusting adam in that role because this is a role that is typically filled with huge celebrity types right you'll get phil hartman or a tim allen but uh, adam's relatively unknown outside of the genre circuit but he's perfect like i actually said it to Rhett. i don't think anyone could have pulled off this performance like adam did like he is so pitch perfect and brilliant. And I just want to talk about how did you build that trust with Adam? Because it's probably, what, his, his
4: sixth feature credit? Well, I mean, I wrote the part for him. And it was one of those things where if he didn't want to do it, I might have been discouraged from making the movie at all. Because <laughs> I, I just, as I was writing it, I could just see him doing all of these things. And I knew he could do it. Because Adam is, has so much range. It's amazing. He can go from being like cool, tough guy to like ignorant asshole to pathetic loser and like jump back and forth, like go across the full spectrum, like in a heartbeat. And it's great. And it's like a real testament to his talent that he can pull off such a range of characters. And so he was the only one for that role, in my opinion. And... It, it, it wasn't so much like trust as like just relief, like knowing like I have one known quantity because everyone else was like unknown to me. Like I had not worked with the kids or Alexis or anyone else in the cast or Matt and Inneberg. So having Adam there, it was just like a level of comfort and like gave me more confidence because I knew I could trust him to push the role into crazy weird places that I wouldn't expect.
2: And that's cuz you guys have been making movies together for over
4: 15 years, right? Yeah, exactly. Like I just know I know he's going to deliver something great and we have a good open dialogue about stuff. Like we'd always have like little post-mortems after every day of shooting where we just text back and forth like how things went and what he was thinking and what we could change and improve. So, it was great to have him just as somebody to consult with outside of just the role of Greg, but also just the making of the movie as well, because Adam uh, will not hold back and give me his straight opinion on a lot of things. And so having that fellow creative like on set with you is so advantageous because, you know, sometimes you're shooting a movie, you kind of get in your own head about how things should be going and delude yourself into thinking things are going well, if they're not. And so having somebody that'll be straight with you and be like, this part's not working is totally the best situation to have on your movie.
3: And, and you let him play around too. Like I love that shot when the, what does he throw through the wall and then Adam's reacting in the living room and you, you sort of hold on that take for like yeah. extra 20 seconds there. Like, I love that part. There's so much raw truth in that of his reaction. And, yeah,
4: well, th- that know. was, those are the best moments to me is like, raw truth is a good way of summing it up is just letting him go and freak out and, and do, like, the full arc of the moment. I think that, that speaks to a lot of moments in the movie. Like, I like letting things hang just to see, like, what's going to happen as opposed to cutting away. Like, I wanted to feel that rise and fall of that character, like, going from being shocked to, like, kind of choking on his own shock <laughs> to, like, almost crying. I don't know. It's just such a, like... Funny journey to go on in that moment. I want. I him. hope he gets so many roles after this.
2: But what I love most about the film is the spirit of Astron that comes back, even though it might not be an official Astron's project, but it feels like you're returning to the family dinner style of uh, making movies with your homies with the freedoms that bring. But it felt like before this, maybe you guys kept teasing the end of
4: Astron. Was that a joke or has this brought new life into Astron? I mean, I hope it gets more attention on Astron and we can all finally get off our asses and make another movie properly. But yeah, I mean, for me, this was me just trying to recapture the spirit of like making Manborg and Laser Ghosts, like projects that I directed, but had the support of like, like had the cast support of those guys uh, to kind of just like, enhance everything that i was doing you know i love that dynamic and would love for it to come back again in full force but for now this is as close as i'm going to get to recapturing that
2: so uh, so it's not dead we're astron
4: is not dead well i I mean it's tough we've all got our own lives and are trying to just survive in the world right now so it's hard to say what's dead and what's alive anymore but i mean (laughs) i would love to do more astron stuff and uh
2: we're Never all in Nightmare City. Okay, good. I like we're, to hear that. So, sorry to get serious.
3: There, we're all kind of like the BioCop right now, just like trying to survive. And uh,
4: <laughs> yeah, we are, in are living in a BioCop hell right now, which is awful and weirdly ironic, I guess. But uh, but
2: there's a, there's a freedom and a fun to the chaos that you embrace in your work, and I think if everyone else could lighten up and kind of embrace the surreal morbid hilarity of what's going down, we could probably work through it a bit together, you know? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just
4: have to laugh at what's going on and it's the best way to push through some dark times. And I mean, PG definitely... Is a very absurd movie, but I'd like to think it's an upbeat movie and somewhat positive. And despite the like insanity and the darkness it goes to sometimes, like I'd like to think it's a bit of a crowd pleaser. And hopefully, it- oh, it's an absolute crowd pleaser.
2: But you always, you always have a shadow of existentialism over uh, your auteur work. It seems.
4: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like to dip into those dark, self-reflective moments occasionally. But I like to think that I'm an optimistic filmmaker, that I'm not going to make a full, like, misery porn movie. I think it would be impossible. But I I felt like even making The Void, it was like going a little bit too dark for even my taste. And that was the thing. It was a process of discovery for me as a filmmaker, I think, was just to see, like, do I even like this kind of stuff? And that's not to say I'm not proud of that film and, like, love what we did with it. But, like, my heart lies in the world of things like Mortal Kombat and Star Wars and Power Rangers. Well, and
2: that's what I want to bring up is that PGs very much a movie night movie. You could watch this 15 times. Uh, the void you might watch a couple times, but it's so sad and kind of jarring that you're like, okay, I don't know if I want to watch this with my homies. but you seem to be embracing like the
4: camaraderie fun type of movie. Would you say? Yeah, I feel like there's not a lot like that right now. It's, it's like a hole in media that I'm experiencing right now. Is that like kind of uplifting, absurd movie that is like a little rock and roll, like a little anthemic. Like it feels a bit like a concert where you get this like euphoria of like spectacle and comedy and absurdity all just kind of being mashed together. And so I just wanted to make a thing. That had that kind of energy because everything feels so low energy to me right now. TV shows and movies, it feels like they're dipping into like real grim seriousness. And this is me like trolling that kind of media a little bit.
2: Well, because it's a false seriousness. There's no honesty to
4: it. It's just a marketable, morbid sensibility. That, that's what I mean. It's like It feels like everybody watching Breaking Bad and was like... yeah we need to go to the places that show goes and they just are chasing that not realizing that that's like that shows like fun and wacky and goes dark but like is also very silly at times and so for me pg was me trying to like put out into the world that like you can tell fun stories too that still have some dark intensity to them and are still engaging but they can still be fun, and they can still end with a rap song. Like that's not the end of the world, you know. So more
3: more yeah. movies need a rap song at the end. I missed that from the early '90s or late '80s. You know, there was like 20 movies in a row. It seemed like Waxworks and uh, Ghostbusters Two, Maniac Cop Two. It seemed like you oh, always yeah. had to end with a rap song. It even went
4: into the 2000s because the one that I will never forget is seeing the remake of Assault on Precinct 13 in the theater oh, yes. and. and That ends with a rap song that it like does the typical rap movie rap song thing where it kind of sums up the movie a little bit. But then it breaks the fourth wall and is like name dropping the actors like it talks about like Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne. (laughs) I just remember walking out of the theater hearing that and being like, oh, geez, they're still doing this. The rap song thing. So
2: this is why you stay during the credits, folks. Yeah. One,
4: I mean, one of the
2: reasons you need to respect the cast and crew of the film and see who they name drop in the in the special thanks. But uh, <laughs> yeah. So, Steve, I got to admit, you're being a little naughty with the title PG. Uh, are you hoping that some teens find discover this movie like you may have discovered The Giver?
4: Yes, I want this to be that R-rated movie that uh, maybe some younger monster kids discover and are a little shocked by it. You know, maybe it's a, a little bit above their age in terms of like the kind of content they should be consuming. But, you know, I hope that it has that effect on some kids somewhere that movies like, yeah, Guyver 2 or Robocop or Aliens or Terminator 2 had on me where it appealed to me in terms of all these sci-fi fantasy trappings that I love being a kid that loves Saturday morning cartoons and comic books and things and video games. But then also hit me with some hard realities and some really horrifying imagery that shocked and horrified me and you know, traumatized me a little bit. I'll always go back to like the melting guy in Robocop. Oh man. Or when his hand's getting destroyed
3: yeah. and he's oh and then he just explodes into liquid when he gets hit by the car there. Yeah. Right.
4: Obviously, that's, uh, you know, I was influenced on that for Biocop, which then carries into PG as well. But uh, yeah, I'd love this movie to have that kind of effect on somebody, some young kid that then decides their way of dealing with that trauma of being horrified by this movie is to then make their own horrifying monster movies. And they'll, you know, get out some clay and start sculpting monsters. And who knows, they could be making a sequel to PG.
3: PG 13. That's what you got to call it. Well, that's. (laughs)
4: That is definitely a discussion that's happening. That is, we were joking about it on that on the movie that the sequel would be called PG thirteen. So, trying to figure out how to work that in right now. Um, How
3: how old's the kid in it? Maybe the kid can be thirteen then uh, when she's. Well, yeah, it would
4: make sense if they were teenagers in it. But the question also is like, do we do a, a movie or do we do a TV series? There's a lot of options floating around right now. There's definitely going to be more PG adventures in the future. We're just trying to figure out what that's going to be.
3: exactly. Great to hear.
2: Okay, last question, Steve. If you're doing a movie night and you just watch PG, what are three movies you would recommend
4: double featuring it with or triple featuring or quadrupling if you're a crazy person? I mean, just based on what's on my brain right now, Masters of the Universe. Yeah, I'm going to throw Wishmaster in there. Two? No, I'd say the first one. The first one has all the gags, though I do like how the suit looks in the second one a little bit better than the first one. And then as far as third movie, let me look at my shelf. Just for funsies staring at me, I'm going to say Dr. Mordred, the Empire Pictures classic. Or I guess that would be Full Moon, sorry. That was early 90s, so it would have been a Full Moon Pictures. That was. And this is their Doctor Strange ripoff with Jeffrey Combs? Yeah, Charles Band's attempt at Doctor Strange. I'm going to say Rawhead Rex just because that movie was actually like the thing that started me figuring out the plot of PG because as <laughs> I was watching Rawhead Rex and getting bored because it's not the most uh, engaging film, that's when I started thinking like, what can I do with this kind of concept? Ancient evils resurrected, but what do you do with that? And that's when I came up with like, well, what if you matched it with ET and it was like, a bunch of kids and this evil monster go on weird adventures. And it's kind of like a Amblin-esque like kids film, but you never break from the fact that it's this evil monster that murders people, (laughs) never stops murdering people. And there's no moral or lesson learned.
3: Yeah, I love the part when the kid says, nice Halloween costume and he just murders the kid and then there's nothing else, you know, it just goes on. No fallout, no fallout to that (laughs) moment. Got kid (laughs) exploded and we move on
4: yeah committing to that logic i think is was what got me really into this movie was like oh yeah like just pretend there's no consequences and you can really have fun with this idea and go to some wacky places and rawhead rex works because most
2: of it's so boring you could just chat about how awesome pg was for most of rawhead rex and then just pay attention during the
4: bigger moments exactly and and then like just come back for like the key moments like uh rawhead rex pissing on that priest that part's pretty good (laughs) yeah man there's definitely moments in there, but yeah, a lot of it's very slow and yeah, very cheap looking.
2: Well, PG is out on Blu-ray, VOD, DVD, probably be on a streaming service at some point, but give people your money that are making this cool ass film, man. And uh, Hunky Boy Edition might be sold out when this comes out. So hopefully you don't have to pay too much for it on eBay if you were, uh, if you snoozed and lost.
4: Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Thanks for having me, guys. Great chatting with you.
2: Psycho Gorman, now available on Blu-ray. Be sure to get the Hunky Boy, Special Edition. Mail day! Mail day! We've got some Blu-rays read every nerd's favorite day of the week, when your big box of dirty movies comes. And I got a nice bit today, right? you, you, get you got some goodies?
3: Yeah, I got some great ones. All right, man,
2: first up, I got a double feature from third window films out of the UK. Sadly, this is just a region B, but it contains two of the craziest Japanese animated films I've seen in a long time, Violence Voyager and Burning Buddha Man. I must note that this is not actually animation, but Gekimation, where all of the characters are cut out illustrations that are being photographed and moved. And there are three short films shot in a similar style on here, an interview with the director who has uh, pioneered this style of animation, and audio commentaries from him on both of the films. So, very happy to pop this in. What what do you got, Rhett?
3: I have, from Vinegar Syndrome, Silent Madness, which was an early 3D uh, slasher film from, I think, 1984. And yeah, this has been long out of print, never was on DVD even, and then finally... Vinegar Syndrome doing what they do, restored it in a 4K scan, and it looks amazing, and they have the digital 3D for 3D TVs or the red and blue anaglyph with the glasses. Really fun slasher though, awesome to see it for the first time again in, you know, decades.
2: And wasn't this shot by the crew of Friday the
3: 13th Part 3? For the 3D process, yeah, because they had a group that just went from movie to movie basically, and then, you know, they amalgamated with the rest of the crew to to make it so yeah definitely it's got those ties to it as well all right next up i got a fancy lad movie
2: from the criterion collection the parallax view starring warren Beatty with the most beautiful hair you've ever seen directed by alan pacula as a part of his conspiracy trilogy which includes
3: all the president's men and and clute
2: Yes. Yes. Well, Parallax View might be my favorite of these. The Gordon Willis photography is absolutely stunning. I can't wait to see a transfer where the blacks aren't extremely messy because there's a lot of dark in this movie, and I think it's going to benefit quite a bit from a new transfer. Can't wait to dig into this one. It's got some special features on the cinematographer, so I'm going to dig into that right away. Uh, Definitely a
3: gem of a DP. Gordon Willis represent. He is the king. I hope one day Criterion does... 4K HDR so we could see those inky blacks. All right, my next one is City in Panic from Massacre Video. It is only on DVD, but that's because despite it being shot on film, all the mastering and editing was done on tape, so there's really no better quality version that's out there than what the DVD could provide, unfortunately, but the reason I sought it out is because it is a rare Canadian horror film that's actually set in Canada and downtown Toronto and it's based on kind of a true story and it follows a, a serial killer and he's killing all these random people that you find out are all connected because they have AIDS. So it's pretty, pretty uh, un-PC kind of material here. So I'm assuming it won't be as respectful as... Cruising. <laughs> well, yeah, probably of that type. Yeah, for sure. But the Canadian, you know, I always want to champion any weird Canadian stuff. So City in Panic sounds like perfect one.
2: All right. The, the last one I got is one I've been waiting for for over six months. I've been very excited to get this in my hands and it's long sold out. It is the UHD release of Demons 1 and 2 from Arrow Video. And when they first released the images for this set, I was creaming my jeans. When I received it, i was the jeans weren't so creamy i gotta admit this box very flimsy it's not as flimsy because i actually had to put in some of the trash that came with it to make the box sturdy enough right here take this box
3: oh what that's how it came it's like shaking you can listen you can hear it shake within. open
2: it up how satisfying
3: is it to get these
2: paper sleeves in this loose box Let's just say Arrow did not do a great job with the packaging of the Demons double feature. I heard there's
3: some problems with the Transfer too. a little bit.
2: The transfers aren't beautiful, but they are the best these movies are ever going to look. But for all the collectors in the house, I'm going to be honest with you. Just wait until they release the UHD separately and buy Demons 1 on its own. Demons 2, not really that good. Transfer's not that good. And this limited edition set, not that good. However, Demons 1 is a classic all-time top 10 for me actually and i hope that once this pandemic's over we can finally watch it on 35 millimeter with our good friends from night terrors film society at the globe cinema can't wait to see that one all right Rhett, what's your last one
3: last one actually another vinegar syndrome one killing birds which is also known as zombie five despite being filmed before zombie three so Yeah, movie titles were weird back in the day. So anyway, this one is a wild Italian one where it's not even really about the birds so much killing people as just uh, existential dread and weirdness going on, but it's a a really wild one. Are there actual zombies in this one? yeah kind of like a dude who got attacked by a bird and then he like lives in this house or on the porch or something of the house it's like the story makes absolutely no sense but there's some really really cool like usually with most of these italian ones right like the final act is like amazingly lit and so moody and atmospheric and you're like what is this like this is like one of the best movies i've ever seen you know but then you sludge through like an hour of people talking about an old computer and you know like random stuff like that so watch with friends yeah, totally. But it is—it's a, a great one, though. There's some really unsettling imagery in it.
2: And most everything we've mentioned today is available on Unobstructed View, uh, where in which you will get a discount code if you subscribe to the Cuff newsletter. And Unobstructed View carries most of the really great shit. They've got a lot of mondo macabre. They got Vinegar Syndrome. They got MVDs. Scream Factor. Factor. They pretty much got it all. Criterion's. So uh, Synapse Severin. Hit up Unobstructed View for all your weird shit. I know I definitely have a box of some very strange movies coming that I look forward to talking about in the next episode. Well, that's it, folks. The first Cuffcast in the can. Rhett, anything you want to say to the fine folks at home?
3: No, we did it, and thanks so much for sticking around. On our next
2: episode, we're going to have an interview with the Tiff Midnight Madness guru himself, Mr. Colin Geddes, and Heather Buckley of Red Shirt Pictures to talk about making Blu-ray special features. So please do subscribe and tell your friends that this is where you can hear about all the cool, weird cinema. And uh, thanks for listening. That's crazy.